0: Hi, I'm David Peskovitz.
1: And I'm Mark Fraunfelder.
0: And you're listening to For Future Reference, a podcast from the Institute for the Future. In every episode of For Future Reference, we talk with scientists and engineers whose forward-thinking research has the potential to transform our lives over the coming decade. For 3.6 billion years, evolution has governed the biology on this planet. But now mother nature as a collaborator. An institute for the future, we call it intentional biology. Inexpensive tools to read and rewrite the genetic code of life will bootstrap our ability to manipulate biology from the bottom up. The more we learn about the physics of biological processes and the intricacies of the genome and the biome, the better we'll be able to tweak our own biology. We'll not only genetically reengineer existing life, but actually create new life forms with purpose. Today on For Future Reference, we're talking with Josiah Zahner.
2: I envision a day when it'll be easy for anyone to edit the genome of a human being.
0: Who's developing some tools that will enable us to engineer evolution.
1: Hi, Josiah. Tell us your name, what you do,
2: and where you do it. My name is Josiah Zahner. And I am a biohacker, but I also like to think of myself as an explorer of sorts. And I work out of a garage in Castro Valley, California, the Bay Area.
1: And so I know you've been involved with a lot of stuff, really interesting stuff, like doing a a DIY fecal transplant and and working with CRISPR technology and stuff. Tell us about something that you're working on right now that you're interested in.
2: Yeah, so a lot of my work centers around making science, genetic engineering and synthetic biology more accessible to people because all the power of synthetic biology, I want to I want to see it um be explored and be used because there's so many things it can do. One of the main things that I have been focusing on lately is to make consumer synthetic biology tools and products. And what I mean by consumer synthetic biology is basically that instead of using synthetic biology to make a product, I know there's a lot of companies out there like uh, Spiber and Bolt Threads that are engineering silk fibers and yeast and then making coats out of these engineered silk fibers. And that's a cool use of synthetic biology, but instead of using synthetic biology to make a product synthetic biology is the product so I want people to actually be able to use synthetic biology to engineer and create things that they can then use so the main thing that I've been focusing on is engineering yeast so engineering yeast to be able to brew beer engineer yeast to be able to bake in uh the next few months we're going to be releasing a bunch of cool things that allow people to engineer yeast and then use it to brew beer in their own home
1: so how could you, how do you actually engineer yeast? Like, say I, I got one of these these kits from you, what would the process be?
2: It's actually not that complicated. That's the whole crazy thing that I really ran into, you know, like doing my PhD and working at NASA and their synthetic biology program. I started to look at all this genetic engineering and synthetic biology stuff, and it's it's not complicated at all. So... The way you engineer yeast is basically you mix the yeast with a couple chemicals that aren't hazardous at all, and these chemicals allow the yeast to accept DNA that you mix in the solution with them. So normally DNA doesn't like to cross the cell membrane, but these chemicals then help the DNA across the yeast membrane and then allow you to engineer the yeast and make them do something that they normally didn't do before.
1: And is there a way that you can like plan what it is that you want the yeast to do, or is it like
2: a trial and error? No, you totally can. So a lot of the stuff has been studied scientifically, um, like what yeast do. Uh, A couple cool things that we are working on is... One of them is we've engineered the yeast to make this small molecule, squalene. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the, the urban legend that sharks don't get cancer. You, yeah. you ever heard that before? Yeah, I have heard that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not 100% true, but sharks have extremely low cancer rates. Mm-hmm. And one of the hypotheses is, is that this small molecule, squalene, it's been shown to be uh, antioxidant and like anti, you know, cancer and all these other things. And it's suggested to give sharks these low rates of cancer. So we basically engineered yeast to overproduce this molecule so that you can brew a beer that has like these anti-cancer properties, I guess you can say, basically from a shark.
0: Right. <laughs> Amazing. So, you know, you're perhaps best known for your work with with CRISPR and and making that technology available to anyone can you explain what CRISPR is and and you know what your uh uh, project was
2: oh CRISPR jeesh I remember when I was at NASA and I was first starting to look at CRISPR and looking to use CRISPR and it was so fucking complicated like so first the name CRISPR you know, clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. Right? What does that even mean? I don't even know. <laughs> That's why we're I asking. Still don't you. know. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's all the stuff, all the research done on CRISPR. Originally, all the names and things kind of came before CRISPR was ever used as a genetic engineering technology. So, it kind of had a completely different, uh. Mechanism and a completely different system before human beings took it and used it for genetic engineering. Everything is basically still the same, but we kind of, you know, changed things, shortened things, made things slightly easier because, you know, metabolisms and bacteria and stuff have a lot more complicated needs and features. So basically, what bacteria used CRISPR for is when a virus would invade the cell and put its DNA into the bacterial cell, the CRISPR, the Cas9 enzyme, would come, find the viral DNA, and cut it. And it would store segments of that viral DNA in its own genome, so next time a virus came, it could recognize the virus and cut its DNA again. But that... That doesn't really make any sense in in terms of like genetic engineering. How does somebody use an enzyme that cuts DNA to genetically engineer? And I think that's a place most people get lost. CRISPR, the whole CRISPR system, it doesn't actually do any genetic engineering at all. It doesn't do genetic engineering. All CRISPR does is cut DNA. But in almost every organism that we know of, when the DNA is cut, the cell wants to go through a repair process. And what we can do then is take over this repair process and use it to genetically engineer. So basically what we're doing is we're just going in, you know, uh, like the Kool-Aid man and busting something up, and then we're saying, all right, now when it needs to be fixed, we're going to patch it up with what we want to patch it up with to make it how we want it.
1: And so... Explain how you actually bust it up. Is it like chemical or electrical?
2: There's three parts to CRISPR. One is this Cas9 protein that cuts the DNA. One is, uh, this is also where it gets complicated. Some people call it the guide RNA, but the guide RNA came from taking the tracer RNA and the CR RNA and putting them together, um, way too many acronyms for me. So we'll just say it's the Cas9 protein, it's the guide RNA, and the guide RNA does what it says. It helps, it helps the Cas9 protein, it guides it to find DNA that it wants to cut. And then the third piece is just a piece of DNA that has the changes you want to make to fill in the hole when you make the cut. And it just automatically fits in the, the gap? It kind of does. So like cells, what they do is when they get damaged, when the DNA is damaged, they'll say, hey, I need to repair this. Is there any templates around? Is there anything I can look at that shows me um, how to repair this damage? And what you do is you just flood the cell with all this stuff and it says, oh, I found a template to repair this DNA. It doesn't care if it's the correct one or the incorrect one. Sometimes it just uses it and then when it uses it 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 makes the you know it does the genetic engineering inside the cell and when i i kind of sat down and over a way longer time than it should have taken somebody with a phd and you know this stuff to figure out how crispr works i i saw that wow this stuff is actually kind of simple like people could be able to do this in their own homes if they just had you know, the tools, the reagents, in order to do it. Do
1: you envision a day when it would be easy for anyone to edit the genome of an organism?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I envision a day when it will be easy for anyone to edit the genome of a human being. I think that would be crazy cool. And I don't know where all the regulation and stuff is going to go, but I, I, I imagine... You know, in the next ten years, something like that is going to be really possible.
0: And what would that what would that look like? Being able to have the tools to do this level of um, genetic engineering with purpose on other organisms or on yourself, what would people do?
2: <sighs> I mean, it's a really, really, really good question, and it's often really, really, really hard to answer. And i I kind of relate it back to, uh computers when they first started right when people first started using computer and somebody first made the personal computer you know everybody was like what would anybody use a computer for in their home it's just like a giant you know paperweight maybe you could use it to do some word processing or 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 play a text-based game or something like that but people never envisioned what computers would eventually become, what everybody would program and do. Right now, there's about 7 million hobbyist programmers in the world that have contributed to all sorts of open source or closed source software. And there's probably less than 5,000 hobbyist, like genetic engineers or scientists. Now, imagine if the number of genetic engineers went up to a million or seven million i don't exactly know what would happen, but I imagine people would create lots of cool and interesting things I mean there's so much to be explored that scientists can't even begin to fathom or, or touch on all the possibilities
0: so I think you know when you say yes it's you know it's hard to imagine um, or predict what people would do with this technology. Um, I think that you know that's one of the things that concerns people um, when you hear you know about people quote unquote "playing God or creating weapons or uh, not even doing intentionally malicious things, but just screwing up <laughs> and and what that could mean for the germline or for the environment. And how do you, how do you process this while also talking about um, you know, open source uh, biology and, and genetic engineering?
2: So, a lot of people think it's dangerous to do genetic engineering, and genetic engineering is not inherently dangerous. So, when people think that somebody could accidentally engineer, say, a bacteria to cause harm, I kind of liken that to somebody accidentally writing a computer program that ends up being a virus, you know, that spreads from computer to computer and destroys computers. Like if I told you that you would say, well, that's kind of crazy. Like you can't accidentally write a virus, right? Either that was your goal from the beginning or your goal was really close to there, but like accidentally it just can't happen. And the same thing with biological things in order for somebody to do some harm on accident the the probabilities are just astronomical now whether maybe somebody does something let's say like well they create this plant that grows fast and maybe this plant will will take over uh you know the whole US or something like that i think a lot of the scenarios that we get in our heads are are from you know, apocalyptic movies, I I love them also. So that's where I get all my crazy ideas. But in all honesty, if genetic engineering plants were going to take over the world, I mean, they already would have. In modern agriculture is the biggest genetic engineering experiment we've ever seen, right? Taking these genetic engineered crops that do a lot of different things and planting them all over all over in massive quantities. We're not also just talking about like a little back, you know, backyard garden. We're talking all over massively. And none of them has even come close to some of the invasive species like kudzu and things like that. Like I, I think us accidentally doing something is extremely difficult. And, uh, it's, it's all new technology. I feel like people are afraid of, right. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the stories about electricity when it was first starting to come out and people were like, oh, you know, electricity is so bad. It can kill you and kill all these things. Nowadays, we don't even think twice about using all the electronics we're using. And we're still using you know, the same voltages or similar voltages that were used and all these things. So I think a synthetic biology, genetic engineering, kind of just like that, like, It's a technology that it's difficult to hurt somebody when used, you know, when used with the proper motivation. Mm
1: -hmm. Josiah, could you talk a little bit about your your own experiments on yourself with the fecal transplant, why you did it, and and,
2: and, uh, what the results were? Oh, so the fecal transplant... um, that that was probably one of the most surreal experiences in my life. It seriously was. It's it's up there when I uh walked across a slack line out in Joshua Tree. You guys know what a slack line is? Sure. It's like these really this really thin like nylon. We set it up like 100 feet in the air in Joshua Tree and walking across it with a leash that has you attached. So if you fall off, it definitely fell off. But this thing was just, it was so different than anything anybody would normally experience in life. It just, it's so hard to bring people to that experience. But I'll, I'll try. So, There was a paper that came out, and it was sometime in 2015, and it was about how they found they could identify and track people based on their microbiome. So they took, like, swabs of people's shoes and of their, like, cell phones, and they found that using the bacteria on these things, they could, like, track where people have been, and they could identify people based on their microbiome. The microbiome is just the bacteria that inhabit your body or inhabit your environment. And that kind of blew my mind, especially as technology progresses, just based solely from a privacy perspective. But I started thinking about it even more. Uh, not only is this an interesting idea from a privacy perspective, you know, the bacteria on our bodies. But it's also interesting from a health perspective. Like these bacteria that inhabit our bodies and our environment are—they're almost just like our DNA, right? They can be used to identify us. They contribute to our health. They contribute to uh, people. Some people even say they contribute to, you know, our our mental well-being. And for a long time, I suffered from various gastrointestinal health issues. So I came up with this idea that maybe I could do this experiment where I, I can see if I could wipe my whole microbiome, you know, wipe my whole microbiome because maybe it's bad. Maybe it's bad because I have these health issues or maybe it's bad because somebody's trying to track me. Nobody's trying to track me, I swear. Um, speaking to you, FBI, I know you're listening in right now. Um, and I, I I, thought, all right, so I need to find a donor, and I need to find a way to wipe all the bacteria out of my body, replace try and replace the bacteria inside and on the outside of my body and kind of try and measure and see how that affects my health, if the bacteria actually um, take, take seed in my body and they colonize me, right? Because it's not just putting the bacteria on you. We're constantly getting bacteria in us and on us. But it's also like, can the bacteria colonize us? So I found somebody I knew who was really healthy and I decided to embark on this journey that had me staying in a hotel room for three days. I sterilized the hotel room so I wouldn't get any transfer from any unwanted bacteria. I took a bunch of antibiotics in order to wipe out my own bacteria really well. And then I transplanted the donor's bacteria from the skin and did a fecal transplant, which was taking their feces and basically ingesting it in, in like a pill capsule form. So I didn't, I didn't really taste it, but, and over a period of days doing this, it was, it was really brutal. I don't think people fully understand how bad antibiotics are for us. Like, how how they damage our microbiome so much. After taking those antibiotics, like, just the way I felt was horrible and awful. And I, I can't imagine taking antibiotics again, except in extreme cases, you know, when my basically life depends on it. But these antibiotics wiped out all my bacteria. The transplant... It ended up taking in my body. We did a bunch of sequencing and we saw that the donor's bacteria were able to colonize my gastrointestinal tract. We saw that the donor's bacteria was able to colonize my skin for a few days. Um, But once I moved back home to the apartment, my bacteria, my new bacteria started to mix with my old bacteria. So I kind of had this uh, uh, mesh of the two different microbiomes. And some of my health issues started to clear up, which was crazy. And I don't want to get too graphic. Um, So if you're eating something right now, I suggest you put it down. But uh, I used to have blood in my stool all the time, like a few times a week. And after the transplant, it totally cleared up. Like since I've done the transplant, I haven't seen any at all, which just kind of blows my mind.
1: That's really amazing. Josiah, can you can you tell us what inspires you?
2: I think the biggest thing that inspires me is other people. Um, I grew up, I, I guess you could say, really poor on a farm in Indiana. We drank dehydrated milk. I don't know if you ever drank dehydrated milk before. Like, I don't think anybody has in, like, the modern times, <laughs> we drink dehydrated milk. I have on camping trips. Oh, you have? Like, hey, are you talking I'm just about camping. like it's not good dehydrated, not dehydrated creamer? I know, I know, you camp really in style, but no,
1: like powdered powdered <laughs> milk, and you stir it up with water, and it's lumpy and sticky.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, and we ate eggs from our chickens, and. Um, My mom had a couple divorces, so, you know, growing up was pretty hard, and I saw all the struggles that I had to go through and overcome, and I see a lot of people going through similar struggles. And the way people handle those struggles, the way people overcome them, the way people still seek out to do stuff like science despite those struggles or engineering or programming or something... It really inspires me. A lot of my work is inspired to help, you know, alleviate all the troubles that people go to or all the troubles that people have to deal with in their life.
1: That's great, Josiah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. It's been really interesting.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Bye, Josiah. I really like Josiah's enthusiasm in giving biotech over to the people because it's usually something that is like in a sterile lab that is behind glass walls, people in smocks, and his, you know, comparisons to PCs are, are really apt in that way. You know, it's no longer raised floors with mainframes and, and guys in white lab jackets. It's now Giving these tools to everyone, I I really applaud that
0: spirit. Absolutely, I mean it's it's the maker culture, right? Um, as as you well know, applied to biology. I mean, synthetic biology really is about turning biology into an engineering discipline. And you know, as we've seen in in around personal computers, the the most interesting things start to happen with the technology when um, you know people uh, uh, are empowered to to create what they will with it. Yeah. One thing I, I
1: think, you know, honestly, we probably could have challenged him a little bit more on the, the potential dangers. He said, you know, you can't accidentally write a computer virus. Some people can intentionally write computer viruses, though. So if you give these kits to people, can someone intentionally create a, a very infectious microbe
0: that's like not, not good for you? absolutely or or even even unintentionally um, you know do some self experimentation that could that could hurt you or hurt other people i mean I think that that's a you know that's a risk and it has to be managed but I also don't think it's a it's a problem that you can solve but yeah i mean it's a it's a dilemma um, that you have to manage um, the technology the biotechnology is not bad or good it's it's a tool and Um, one of the things that I like most about, you know, his mindset really is that um, it's empowering for people to understand how biology works. And the way that people are going to understand it best is not by reading about, you know, genetics in some textbook, but actually, you know, rolling up their sleeves and getting out the pipettes and doing some experimentation. And to me, that's what um, the DIY biology and the biohacking movement is all about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and the name of the the Biocuria's lab that he's part of, I mean, is the perfect name. It's it's to to satisfy people's curiosity about something that they normally wouldn't have access to, which I think is a wonderful thing. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to For Future Reference. I'm David
1: Peskovitz and I'm Mark Frauenfelder. For more information about Institute for the Future and to subscribe to the For Future Reference podcast, visit iftf.org.
0: For Future Reference is underwritten by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. With production support from Parker YesCO and BMP Audio, Greg Fleischett composed the music.